0: Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right,
1: we are back once again with the second episode of this week's Doubleheader we're bringing you for the Lions of Liberty podcast. That's right, not one, but two podcasts in one week. Back on Monday, we had my interview with Hunter Lewis, where we discussed the rampant crony capitalism in America and how the Federal Reserve enables it all. A couple of very important subjects for budding libertarians to be knowledgeable on, so be sure to go back. Check out that episode, you can find it in the podcast archive, lionsofliberty.com slash podcast, or you can download it on iTunes, add it to a playlist using the Stitcher radio app. If you're an RSS guy, you can use an RSS reader, we we link to the RSS feed over at lionsofliberty.com as well. And now today, I have someone who is an expert on a subject I've long been fascinated by, and that is the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Now the 50th anniversary of the assassination is actually tomorrow, November 22nd, if you're listening today, on the date of the release of this podcast, on Thursday. And from a very young age, I remember being just absolutely fascinated by this case. It's something just completely immersed in our culture, and we all remember the magic loogie episode of Seinfeld, which of course pokes fun at the government's seeming magic bullet theory as put out by the Warren Commission. The official story at the time but as we often see with government there is usually a little more to the official story than what we get and my guest here with me today has a very well-developed theory on the assassination of jfk he is a long-time political consultant and strategist having worked with several former presidents including richard nixon and ronald reagan He's also the author of a new book, which has come out just in time for the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The book is titled The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. Roger Stone, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Great to be with you. And we're thrilled to have you here today. Obviously, this is a topic that's, you know, kind of on a lot of people's minds right now with the 50th anniversary coming up. But before we get into your book, you you spent much of your career largely working for Republicans, you know, well-known Republicans like Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. You were also instrumental in the recount election that saw George W. Bush elected president. But in recent years, you've switched over and have been working, you know, more closely with some libertarian candidates. I believe you supported Governor Gary Johnson in his presidential vid. So, you know, why did you decide to begin working with libertarians? What prompted that switch?
0: I sadly concluded that the Republican Party I was born in, the Republican Party of Barry Goldwater, had morphed into just another big government party, and that you can look at the major parties today, and although they go out of their way to try to sound different, when it came to the big issues facing America, the Patriot Act, spending, debt, foreign interventionism, they're really identical, and that therefore the voters didn't really have any choice the choice between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney was no choice whatsoever. They were both committed, for example, to continuing the war on drugs. They're both committed to spying on Americans through the NSA. So, you know, it was with great reluctance because I was a young Republican national chairman in 1977. I have great affection for the old Republican Party, but that's not the Republican Party of today.
1: Well, we're certainly glad to see you rejecting this two-party conglomerate, because that's something we really push a lot. That, that's the, pretty much the first step into making any change in politics, is to rejecting that. And that, as you mentioned there, you got involved in politics, you know, when you were very young, at a very young age, and there are a lot of young people just getting involved now, a lot of them young libertarians. First of all, why did you first become interested in the Kennedy assassination? And then, you know, why is it so important that, you know, young people today should also care so much about this case? Why is it historically so important? And why is it important to really get to the bottom of it?
0: Because the truth is always important. And because if anyone reads my book and they come away with the conclusion that government lies to us, that government doesn't tell us the truth, and therefore that anything government says should be regarded with a healthy skepticism. Uh, then that'll be a positive thing. I mean, quite obviously, Lyndon Johnson is not going to be posthumously prosecuted for murder, uh, although technically I think he should be, and that many of those who actually perpetrated the murder of John F. Kennedy obviously dead, but the institutions that they represent are still very much with us and still lying to us. So whether it is Benghazi or whether it is health care or whether it is the JFK assassination, government just doesn't tell the people the truth
1: in your book you don't mess around this is not some drawn-out mystery novel you're clear you know right from the get-go right from the title the man who killed kennedy the case against lbj so when did you first get the inkling that lyndon johnson should be the focus of your investigation that he was the guy to target in this
0: it became clear to me that lyndon johnson had the unique means motive an opportunity to kill John Kennedy. People have forgotten that in 1963, Lyndon Johnson was a man staring into the abyss. He knew that he was going to be dumped from the 1964 ticket. He knew that he was going to be prosecuted for corruption by the Kennedy Justice Department. He knew the U.S. Senate was hot on his trail in the so-called Bobby Baker scandal. Baker had been Johnson's bagman, mm-hmm. and Baker and Johnson had received literally millions in bribes from people wanting federal legislation or federal contracts. He also knew that Robert Kennedy had given Life Magazine and the Time Life Corporation a full dossier on Johnson's involvement with a man named Billy Saul Estes, who was a flamboyant Texas con man who had kicked back millions to Johnson. So he knew time was running out, and he was a very desperate man. He also was a very greedy very vicious, very vindictive, very unbalanced, very ambitious. You know, he was evil incarnate. This is not a man who was a saint by any means.
1: One word you mentioned there really stands out when you say he was unbalanced. Now, you give a really kind of in depth description about Lyndon Johnson, the man, and it's truly fascinating at the same time, absolutely frightening that this guy is the guy that controlled the military could press the nuclear button at any time. Can you just detail a little bit more about LBJ's general demeanor? Like, why do you say he's unbalanced?
0: Uh, he was. First of all, he was a serial murderer. He was an amoral psychopath. I tie him to at least eight murders, cold-blooded murders on the way up. Murders to cover up corruption. He was ethically corrupt. I'm talking about corruption of biblical proportions. In 1963, it was determined... He on a schoolteacher's salary and the salary of a congressman and U.S. senator was worth twenty-five million dollars.
1: It's been a hell he was of a school. <laughs>
0: corrupt. Yeah, he was ethically corrupt. He was usually drunk. He was vulgar. He was vindictive. He was a manic depressive, given to deep, deep depressions. At the same time, he would have volcanic outbursts of temper. Uh, he fathered at least three illegitimate children while he was president of the United States or U.S. Senate. This is someone who was abusive, abusive to his dogs, abusive to his family, abusive to his staff. He was a functioning lunatic. As one Secret Service agent says in my book, if he hadn't been president, they would have locked him up in a mental institution.
1: I mean, he almost sounds like a modern-day Nero, just a classic example of the type of absolutely psychotic people that attempt to gain the kind of power you can get from being president.
0: And he had no problem finding other plotters. In other words, I'm not arguing that Johnson and his people killed Kennedy alone. He found willing partners in the CIA. They were upset with Kennedy over the Bay of Pigs fiasco about the fact that in the Cuban Missile Crisis that he had given away American missiles in Italy and Turkey, as part of a secret bargain with Khrushchev, something the American people didn't find out about for 40 years. They were upset about his back-channel entrees to Castro. They were upset about his changes, uh, his proposed changes to the role of the CIA. They were upset about the fact that he was moving towards withdrawing American troops from Vietnam. They were upset about his failure to assassinate Castro. So the military-industrial complex, for whom Lyndon Johnson was a champion, was a willing partner. As far as organized crime is concerned, Lyndon Johnson took $55,000 a month and a regular bribe from organized crime. He was protecting their illegal gambling operations in the state of Texas. He was closely affiliated with Carlos Marcelo, who ran the mob in Texas and Louisiana. They had many mutual friends, such as oil man Clint Murchison, who vacationed with Johnson at Del Moro, a resort in Northern California. So um, it is not surprising. And then lastly, of course, there's Texas oil. Lyndon Johnson was the water carrier for Texas oil. And the Texas oil billionaires who were right-wing to a man, they were upset because they knew that JFK wanted to repeal the oil depletion allowance, a tax break that put millions in their pockets. So Johnson had no trouble whatsoever finding others as plotters, and they all had their own motive, but Johnson had a unique relationship historically with every one of them. Now,
1: about... Johnson's kind of connections. I I want to talk about the role of the Secret Service in the assassination. You've worked closely with several presidents. You probably know a lot about how the Secret Service is supposed to operate. What are a few things, a few oddities you can point out from the day of the assassination about how the Secret Service acted? And how did Johnson's, you know, did Johnson have certain contacts in the Secret Service that helped in this plot?
0: The Secret Service violates their own procedure manual time after time after time on December 22nd. I'll give you several examples. The 120-degree turn into Daly Plaza is a violation of the Secret Service procedures because it requires the car to come to an almost near stop, making the chief executive vulnerable. The fact that the buildings on either side of Daly Plaza were not sealed is a violation. They were supposed to be emptied and sealed. They weren't. There's supposed to be six motorcycle policemen as an escort for the presidential limousine, three on either side of the car. In Dallas, that's reduced to two, and they are curiously told to ride behind the rear axle of the president's car. We know there's supposed to be two Secret Service agents on the rear bumper. They're missing. We know there's supposed to be two agents walking abreast the car when it drops below 15 miles an hour. They are missing. So the Secret Service makes a series of, quote-unquote, errors that I think cannot be coincidence because there are too many of them. It's interesting to note that on the 21st, JFK visits Houston and Dallas, and all the procedures are in place. Uh, We also know it was Lyndon Johnson who insisted that Kennedy go to Dallas. It is Lyndon Johnson's protege, Governor John Connolly, who specifically insists on the drive through Dealey Plaza. And when the Kennedy staff doesn't like it for all the obvious security problems, they are overruled. So it is more than curious, then, when Lyndon Johnson returns to Washington, D.C. after being sworn in as president, after the slaying of President Kennedy, the first man up the stairs at Andrews Air Force Base, the first man Johnson embraces in a bear hug, is Secret Service Director James Rowley, a man who got his first job in government in 1938 from Lyndon Baines Johnson. Wow.
1: Now, Roger, a lot of people will say, you know, this is interesting stuff, but hey, there's already been an investigation. You know, you guys are all crazy conspiracy theorists. I don't know why you're still looking into this thing. We had the Warren Commission. They determined Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Now, what would you say to people that just point to the Warren Commission and claim the debate is over?
0: That is exactly backwards. I can't believe how any objective, intelligent person can believe the Warren Commission. For example, Both the FBI and the CIA specifically denied they had any previous knowledge of Oswald. We now know that's a lie. Oswald was a paid informant for the FBI, and he was trained by the CIA in the detector program in Magshead, North Carolina. He was sent to Russia as a CIA operative. That explains how, upon his return to the United States, he got his American citizenship back immediately without ever applying for it. It also explains why the U.S. government paid for his airline tickets back for Russia and gave him a $5,000 loan. So anyone who still believes the Warren Commission, I feel sorry for. The evidentiary record was both corrupted and fabricated. The chain of evidence that is required in even the most routine criminal investigations is repeatedly violated. Ballistics evidence or eyewitness testimony or photography or acoustics The Warren Commission has been completely discredited. How any intelligent person can still believe it is really beyond me. And there were a few
1: other independent investigations as well, weren't there? I believe Jackie Kennedy asked the French intelligence to conduct an investigation, and the Russian KGB did their own investigation as well. What did those organizations conclude about the murder?
0: Yeah, Jackie Kennedy asked French intelligence because she has relationships there. She is, of course, a boulevard. She speaks French fluently. She's the toast of Paris. She conducted an exhaustive investigation, which they actually published. They determined Lyndon Johnson did it. The KGB, we learn in 1992 from a declassified document, they were definitely afraid that the murder of JFK was going to be pinned on them. Indeed, Lyndon Johnson attempts to pin it on them. And they conduct their own investigation. They also determined that Lyndon Johnson did it. Again, I think people lose sight of the fact that the members of the Warren Commission were learned a respected men. And therefore, people ask me all the time, how can you say that these respected Americans would go along with a cover-up? It's very simple. Lyndon Johnson told each one of them, the Russians did this. We must cover it up or we're going to have World War III. Every American will die in a nuclear holocaust. 30 million people globally will die because the American people will demand retribution. Therefore for your country. You must do your patriotic duty and stick to this fiction that Lee Harvey Oswald did it. He tells this to Earl Warren. Warren tells us that in his memoirs. He tells it to Richard Russell. He tells this lie over and over again. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that the Russians or the Cubans played any role in John Kennedy's death. And those who say that Kennedy's murder was a blowback from the CIA's Attempts to assassinate Castro don't know what they're talking about. In fact, Castro had back-channel outreach from Kennedy through both a French journalist and from the American diplomat William Atwood, who was a college roommate of Kennedy's in Princeton. So he has no motive. The Russians have no motive. They're very pleased with the outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Old Nikita Khrushchev took the Kennedy boys to the cleaners. I know you've a movie that tells you how brave Jack faced the Russians down and they blinked. That is false. We now know 40 years later that the Kennedy brothers gave up American missiles in Turkey and Italy, changing the balance of power in the Western theater, and that that information was withheld from the American people for 40 years.
1: Now I want to look at this Warren Commission Council a little bit closer. One of the figures on the Warren Commission is the Council, Arlen Specter. It's said that he's threatened certain witnesses. What exactly was Specter's role in this cover-up, and what did he stand to gain? He obviously went on to a very long, you know, successful in political terms career. How did he get any favors or you know returned along the way for this?
0: I think it has to be seen in some context. First of all, I knew Arlen Specter extremely well. We were very good friends. I actually supported him for the U.S. Senate, and I have to admit that much of the research from my book regarding his badgering and intimidation of witnesses were things that I learned after his death. But I must tell you, knowing his personality, they don't surprise me. He was a very tough, very smart, very ambitious, very aggressive, very arrogant, very abrasive. Uh, And he was doing what he was told by Earl Warren and Alan Dulles. He's the establishment man doing the establishment's job. Spectre, prove it was Oswald and wrap it up. He's only following his orders. Now, we know that J. Edgar Hoover concluded three days after the shooting, there were only three bullets, they were shot from behind, Oswald's a Communist, nobody else was involved. Here, Warren Commission, rubber stamp it. And that's largely what Arlen inspector did. And as far as his political career, let's look at it. He was elected district attorney of Philadelphia. Then he ran for mayor. He was defeated. Then he ran for the Senate. He was defeated. Then he ran for governor. He was defeated. Then he ran for the Senate again, and he was elected. So there's no evidence that he got any favors from the establishment. You have to recognize how dogged and insistent he was as an individual. I argued with Arlen Spector about the cockamamie magic bullet theory, usually over cocktails, over martinis. He never gave an inch. He was an articulate defender of his point of view. It just happens to be wrong.
1: It's funny you mentioned that magic bullet theory, because I remember the first time I really even thought about the Jen F. Kennedy assassination was when I saw that Seinfeld, that famous Seinfeld, where they have the magic loogie theory. And that's the first time I started thinking, hey, what what are they actually talking about? And that's when I started looking into all this stuff. So it's interesting you bring that
0: up. Well, really what happens here is J. Edgar Hoover is the first guy who says, this is easy, three bullets. The first bullet hits Kennedy, the second bullet hits Connolly, the third bullet hits Kennedy. Wrap it up, it's done. We now know what happened. The problem that was that a man named James Keg, 39-year-old car salesman, is in Dealey Plaza that day, and while he's standing there watching the motorcade go by, a bullet hits the curb next to him, and a small piece of either bullet fragment or cement, we don't know, grazes his cheek and he bleeds. Well, now the government has a problem. There's a fourth bullet. How do we explain this fourth bullet? So now they changed their story. The first bullet was shot and missed, that hit the curb. The second bullet hit Kennedy and Connolly, and the third bullet hit Kennedy in the head, the kill shot. It's a fiction, but the government had to accommodate somehow the bullet that was accurately found, or I should say identified, by James Cage. So
1: they essentially just had to continually adapt their story to new facts and new revelations that came
0: forward. Yeah, I think that's essentially right. Look, asking the Warren Commission to investigate the killing of Kennedy would be like asking John Gotti to investigate a mob killing. The government (laughs) is investigating itself.
1: Now, there's another interesting figure on the Warren Commission I'd like to ask you about, and that's Gerald Ford. Obviously also went on to some political success, became the president when Richard Nixon stepped down. Now, what exactly was Ford's role in covering up? I believe he covered up some autopsy records, had them altered. You know, what did he? Yes. Know, what was
0: his role there? We now know from the memoirs of two top FBI officials, Carl Thaddeus Deloach, the number three man in the FBI, and William Sullivan, the number two man in the FBI, that Hoover sent word to Ford that there was a problem and that the autopsy photo. And the report shows that Kennedy was hit in the upper back three inches from the third thoraxic vertebrae, that's the upper left back. And that disrupts the so-called three bullets. So Gerald Ford, in his own handwriting, alters the autopsy report to move that wound from the upper back to the lower neck, therefore claiming that the wound on the front of Kennedy's throat was an exit wound, not an entrance wound, and therefore all three shots came from the rear And none came from the front, meaning there's no conspiracy because there's only one gunman. Ford, therefore, moved to change the evidence. When we learned this in 1992, the New York Times asked Ford why he did it, and he said the country needed clarity. You notice he didn't say the country needed truth. In other words, we just had to wrap this up so the country would have a clear idea. Oswald did it, case closed, America moves on. Lyndon Johnson can get on with the business of killing 58,000 Americans in Vietnam and making millions in war profits for his buddies in the defense contract.
1: Now, one interesting name that I found in your book that I had never heard this connection before was Martin Luther King. Now, you actually connect LBJ to his murder as well. Can you go into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, there's not a lot to this. Uh, What I report faithfully is that the King family themselves believe that LBJ was involved in that. King's murder. And it is curious that King is murdered only days after an FBI wiretap picks up King, talking to one of his civil rights associates, telling them that he is going to support Robert Kennedy for the 1968 presidential nomination. Now, Robert Kennedy announces in Northern California, only days before his death, that he intends to reopen the investigation into his brother's murder. So that has presumably sent chills up the spine of those involved in the plot to kill John Kennedy, those being the CIA, organized crime, and, uh, of course, Texas oil, not to mention Lyndon Johnson. So I think that both Dr. King and Robert F. Kennedy were killed to further cover up the murder of John Kennedy.
1: Another story I found fascinating in your book was this story about Bill O'Reilly and how he's connected to this guy, George DeMorenchild, who's supposedly Oswald's CIA handler, and he committed suicide just before he was set to testify in the House Committee on Assassinations. And yet, you know, according to your book, O'Reilly was in Dallas the day that this happened. So what exactly is O'Reilly's connection to this whole thing?
0: Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, I, I found O'Reilly's book highly readable and very interesting. If you're interested in John Kennedy's sex life, get this book. It's all about his sex life. It's very period, It's very racy. It's very sexy. But if you're interested in the facts of the Kennedy assassination, this should be in the fiction section at Barnes & Noble. He basically tells you virtually the same thing I do, that Johnson was evil, that he was facing destruction, that he was desperate. He tells you the CIA is unhappy with Kennedy. He tells you why the mob is unhappy with Kennedy. Kennedy had taken mob help in 1960. He got a million dollars in cash, and they helped steal votes for him. And their reward was to have Robert Kennedy start trying to deport the major mobsters who had helped elect Kennedy. They were furious, and understandably so. And then, of course, Texas oil. So it is absolutely clear that everyone involved here in the plot has their own purposes and their own motives, not to mention Lyndon Johnson's. DeMoren Shield is very clearly Oswald's handler. We know that when DeMoren Shield commits suicide, he shoots himself in the mouth with a shotgun, they find his address book, and in it is the unlisted phone number for George H.W. Bush. We also know DeMoren Shield wrote a letter to Bush, his CIA director, saying, I may have shot my mouth off too much, I've got big problems, I'm being watched, I'm being followed, they're harassing my family, they, I presume he means the CIA, isn't there something you can do to call them off? And Bush writes back saying, yeah, I really don't know what you're talking about, I barely remember you, have a nice life.
1: That's interesting you bring him up. That actually leads me into, you know, when I announced you were going to be on the show to discuss this, it generated a lot of interest from my listeners, and I have just a few questions I wanted to pass along from them. And the first is from Jason Cook, and he asks about, The role of George H.W. Bush, which you just brought up, for years he's maintained that he, you know, had no idea where he was the day of JFK's assassination. And, you know, Bush is always seen as a shadowy figure. He's been involved with the CIA for, you know, his entire life, we believe. So what exactly was George H.W. Bush's role in this assassination? It's a question that I can't answer. It's just that he acts
0: very curiously through the whole thing. He's in Dallas that day. He says for 30 years he can't remember where he was when Kennedy died. That's just not possible. Any adult knows where they were when Kennedy was killed.
1: When 9-11 happened, everybody knows
0: where they were. Exactly. So then he goes out of his way, according to declassified documents that we get in 1992, to uh, call the FBI bureau in Houston, only minutes after Kennedy is shot and killed, to establish an alibi. Basically, Bush says, it's 1.38 in the afternoon, I'm uh, in Tyler, Texas, And uh, I'm passing on a tip to you that there's a man in Houston, James Parrott, a young Republican, and I've heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody that he may have made threats against the president. I, George Bush, am not accusing of that. I don't really know, but I just thought I would point it out. Clearly just calling the FBI to create an alibi. He also goes on to lie and say, I'll be back in Dallas that night. But he's not. He flies back to Houston. The other problem for George H.W. Bush comes in 1992 when we get a declassified document, this one uh, a memo by J. Edgar Hoover, who specifically orders uh, underlings at the FBI to brief George Bush of the CIA about potential Cuban involvement in the assassination. George Bush denies that in 1963 he was working for the CIA. In his Senate confirmation hearings to become director of Central Intelligence, says he's never worked for the agency. We now know that in 1963, during the Bay of Pigs, George Bush and an associate of his, Jack Alston Crichton, are raising money for the Cuban rebels through the auspices of the CIA. So I don't know what his role was on November 22nd. I only know that he brings attention to himself by acting in such a curious way. Many on the Internet accuse him of direct involvement. I have no proof of that. Although, I must tell you, it would certainly not surprise me.
1: This question is from another listener. He's actually a contributor at our website, Lions of Liberty. That's John Odermatt. His question is, to what extent do you feel that Lee Harvey Oswald was actually involved in the conspiracy? Was he involved at some level, or was he just a complete patsy? I mean, did, did he think he was the only one shooting?
0: Was he even one of the shooters? No, he is a fall gun. He is exactly what he says. He's a patsy. And now we know that voice stress technology that did not exist in 1963 but exists today, you can analyze the various statements he makes at the police station in which he says, I don't know what you're talking about. What is this all about? All I did was bring a pistol into a theater. Why are you making a big deal out of this? I didn't shoot anyone. Reporter shouts, did you shoot the president of the United States? Oswald, no, sir, I did not. If you voice stress analyze that answer, he is telling the truth. I don't think that he's even on the second floor. The shooter of John Kennedy from the sixth floor is LBJ's personal hitman, Malcolm Wallace. How do we know this? Wallace's fingerprint is found in the sniper's nest on a cardboard box. Four witnesses tell the Warren Commission that they see a man in the sixth floor window minutes before the assassination, that he is heavy set, balding, and has horn rimmed glasses. You have just described Malcolm Wallace to a T but the Warren Commission ignores that information. There are more than one shooter, I believe, but the shooter from the Texas School Depository Building is Malcolm Mack Wallace, who I tie very tightly to Lyndon Johnson. He's Johnson's personal hitman. Johnson has used him in at least eight other political murders in Texas. Murder to cover up corruption. Murder to cover up vote-stealing and electoral fraud. So I think he is at least one of the shooters and that Oswald is exactly what he says he is. He's a patsy. That's why he seemed so confused at first. Wow. Now
1: this last question is from Trent Seaman. How did the government keep eyewitnesses quiet when their account did not mesh with the government story? I know many were excluded from the Warren Commission. Was there any foul play involved with eyewitnesses that had conflicting accounts?
0: Yeah, they had a much stronger and more effective method of suppressing evidence. They killed people. Of the 1,400 people tied to this case, over 100 of them die from unnatural causes. That completely defies the mathematical probability. That cannot happen. Witness after witness after witness who have information that contradicts the conclusions of the Warren Commission die suspiciously or die unnaturally. So people ask me this as I go around promoting the book, which, by the way, you can find on Amazon.com, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. People say, well, if there were this many people involved in a conspiracy, how could they keep it quiet easily? They killed to keep it quiet. That's a surefire
1: method, I would say. Roger, before I let you go, where can everybody find, uh, you know, check of what you're doing? Not just your book, but also your writing. I know you have a blog and your social media, all that stuff.
0: Sure. You can go to StoneZone.com, where I have a political blog. You can go to StoneOnStyle.com, where I have a fashion blog. I write about men's fashion. You can also go to lbjkilledjfk.com to buy the book. And, of course, you can go to either amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com to buy the book. The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, they are not going to review this book. They're afraid of the bombshell revelations in this book. They're afraid of the implications in this book. But Public Response has been excellent. It's selling more books than virtually any other JFK 50th anniversary book. And I think most people will tell you that it it reads like a spy thriller. So I would urge people, rather than listening to the New York Times or the Washington Post, read the book, make up your own mind.
1: And I absolutely agree, everybody. It's an absolutely fascinating read. And if you're at all interested in the JFK assassination, Or if you're just getting involved in politics and understanding government, it's really something I highly recommend. We'll link to it on our website as well. Roger Stone, thank you so much for joining me today on the Lions of Liberty podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Great.
1: And we will be back after a quick word from our sponsors. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at theplacetovnation.com, your pop culture home. Agree to disagree. Yeah, it's a radio show we have on the newamericanmedia.com every single Friday at 4:30 p.m. Pacific. Join the show. What do we talk about? Politics, religion and spirituality. Basically anything you're not supposed to talk about in a bar. <laughs> you're not supposed to have these conversations inside of a bar, but we have them every single Friday at 4:30 p.m. Pacific on the com. Join the show, offer your opinion, and let's agree to disagree, but let's have a good conversation.
0: This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Mm-hmm.
1: We are back and wow, what a fascinating interview with Roger Stone and what a fascinating book he's written. Now guys, I was not just blowing smoke before with Roger. I mean it when I say this book is absolutely fascinating, an absolutely interesting read. Uh, It's very well researched, footnoted throughout so you can get information from this book and, you know, research it yourself, come to your own conclusions. Roger's sources, absolutely everything, and you combine that with you know, his firsthand knowledge of a lot of these people, and it really makes for an interesting read, especially for JFK assassination buffs like myself. And one thing you get from this book that we touched on briefly with Roger is this description of Lyndon Johnson as just an absolute sociopath. I mean, we didn't get into everything. We could have done a whole podcast just on the insane stories about LBJ contained in this book. But, you know, they truly exemplify the type of person that would get into politics in order to pursue a position of power. You know, there's no doubt that LBJ is an example, perhaps a very extreme example, of the type of person who is not simply interested in success, <laughs> personal success, you know, building a business, making the world a better place, raising a family, you know, the kind of stuff that normal people, <laughs> you know, are interested in, driven by, This type of person is only interested in achieving power. Power, for the sake of power. I mean, that's what defines a lot of these people, what defines why they are sociopaths, why they are psychopaths. These are the type of people that are the most dangerous. And unfortunately, these are the very type of people that are driven to do what you gotta do, even if that means maybe murdering some people along the way in order to achieve that political power. Now libertarians can run into some problems, not just libertarians, anybody, when they discuss things like the JFK assassination, or anything else that goes against the government line, you're often decried as conspiracy theorists, just crazy kooks. And that's why it's important not to just spout off bullshit theories, but it's important to have facts when we discuss these matters. It's certainly okay to question government. Don't let anybody tell you it's not. Not only is it okay, it's paramount. It's necessary. Even if you're a big believer in government, you have to agree that we got to at least keep these guys accountable. And how are we going to do that if we're not asking questions? If we're not questioning the official line on things? Especially when the absolute, verifiable facts fly so much in the face of that official line and in the case of the john f kennedy case you know i gotta look into it a little more i'm not saying i've reached the definite conclusion but boy if you read mr stone's book it's hard to come to any other conclusion other than that lbj at the very least was involved had the motive had the means had the connections and certainly benefited from it now why is that important Why does it matter that some president was killed 50 years ago? And it's not like JFK was some saint, some great guy. Again, in Roger Stone's book, he talks about how JFK was certainly not a saint. Certainly not a great guy. Just like LBJ, he's someone who sought power and used all sorts of means to get there, many of them illegal. So the JFK assassination, does research into it, is not about, you know, JFK was good and the evil government killed him. It is simply the fact, as Mr. Stone stated, that truth is important. It's always important to understand the truth. And for libertarians, people that are generally against government, or at least against the size of government, it's important to point out when the government's lying, and when the government's not telling the truth, and when those lies and those mistruths affect something as big as the presidency, as the most powerful person in the United States, call me crazy, I think it's important. I think it's important to know about, to be knowledgeable about, to talk to people about anything, any subject, any topic that can get people to start thinking differently about government. To stop seeing government as this all-knowing God and Savior can be a little gateway. Something that opens that window, opens that door... To discussing other reasons why government might not be that great in other areas. Now, if the government can go kill the president that the people supposedly elected, uh, you know, why do we want to trust them with you know labeling food or giving us health recommendations? All sorts of things like this. Do go check out Roger Stone's book. Of course, my favorite way for you to buy it would be to click on an Amazon link on our website at lionsofliberty.com. We'll link to it directly on our page, on the podcast link. And there's also a little Amazon box on the right side of the website. If you click through there, any purchases you make, it doesn't have to be just Roger Stone's book, any purchases you make through Amazon at no extra cost to yourself will help our website. Help me do more podcasts. Help me put more of my time and energy. You know, I'm a freelance worker. I can dictate my schedule. Right now I put a lot of my time into into my professional work, into my career. But I'm starting to do this Liberty thing, too. I'm doing these podcasts. I'm doing the website. And the more ability that I have to put time into that instead of my professional career, I will. So the best way to vote is to do it with your dollars. I'm not asking you for donations. I'm not asking you to buy anything, even, that you wouldn't already buy. But if you are going to buy something on Amazon, all I ask is that you consider going through our link, giving us a little kickback, helping us do what we do here. Thank you so much once again for listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Don't forget to check out the website, as I just said, lionsofliberty.com, and find us on social media. We're everywhere. Twitter at Lions of Liberty, Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, Google Plus. We're all over the place. And don't forget, you can find the podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, or you can also add us to your player list on the Stitcher radio app. Can even go to our RSS feed? There's a link there, too. Use an RSS reader. I don't care how you listen. I just want you to listen. I just want you to join me in advancing the ideas of liberty. That's what it's all about. All right? Now, we'll have a little something for you next week. I'm not sure what yet. I've got a few ideas. We will have a podcast before our Thanksgiving break. So be sure to check back next week. Check back to the website for another episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Until next time.
0: Live well, and live free. Head of Editing and Mastering is John Daugherty.